The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Now presenting the documentary series, Escaping Twin Flames. From Emmy nominee Cecilia Peck, this three-part documentary series pulls back the veil on Twin Flames Universe, a controversial online community that preys on people looking for love. Den of Geek says it tackles one of the more interesting subjects that streaming has in some time. Escaping Twin Flames is available now on Netflix. Do you have a log line of the film? One man's fight for economic justice. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, we're talking to John Hoffman about The Barber of Little Rock, a documentary which he directed along with Christine Turner. The film has been nominated for the Oscar for Best Documentary Short Film. The Barber of Little Rock screened at numerous film festivals in 2023, including the Hamptons, Doc NYC, and Indie Shorts International Film Festival. It can now be streamed on the New Yorker's website at newyorker.com. John Hoffman is a six-time Emmy Award-winning filmmaker whose most recent films include the National Geographic portrait Fauci, The Antidote, and Rancher, Farmer, Fisherman. John has also served as an executive. He was executive vice president of Documentaries and Specials for Discovery from 2015 to 2018 after nearly two decades as VP of Documentary Programming at HBO. The Barber of Little Rock focuses on issues of equity and creating generational wealth, specifically in the black community of Little Rock, Arkansas. The main protagonist of the film, Arlo Washington, founded a nonprofit community bank to try to lessen the racial wealth gap. Banking may not seem like the sexiest topic for a documentary or a podcast, but when you've got Arlo Washington as your main protagonist, then community development financial institutions can seem fascinating. And it's clear from the film and also talking to John why Arlo was so ingenious in taking this tool to the federal government and using it to benefit his community in Little Rock. Arlo's a remarkable man. I live only 50 minutes from him in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and I knew nothing about him. Now I do, and I hope someday to meet him in person. As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Instagram at TopDocsPod and on Twitter also at TopDocsPod. And now, my conversation with director John Hoffman of The Barber of Little Rock. John Hoffman, welcome to Top Docs. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You bet. And congratulations on The Barber of Little Rock, which you have directed with Christine Turner. Congratulations on your Oscar nomination. It's very exciting to have this kind of attention for the film. I describe it as shining a complete light on Arlo Washington and his work and bringing a level of attention that only the Oscars can bring to film and, and then with documentaries to a topic and an issue that really needs to be more discussed in this country. You know, it does. And that anticipates my first question uh, exactly, which is through the lens of Arlo Washington and his work in the Black community in Little Rock, Arkansas, your film focuses on issues of equity and creating generational wealth for historically marginalized communities. This focus on economic inequality and lack of opportunity is not discussed much either in our society writ large 
or I don't think is the focus of that many films either. There are a lot of social issue films, social justice films, but I feel like this is a topic that is really not the focus of very many films at all. Were you conscious of trying to fill that information gap? What an interesting question. It's not that we were conscious and were setting out because we sensed this void that you're describing, but one of the sort of common and expected things you do when you are diving into topic is to look at what else has been done and to not just study the literature, but you want to study the media for long form content that might have looked at the topic. And, you know, issues around racial equality has been enormous examination of that. But the racial wealth gap has not been examined all that much. And the history of black banking has not been explored in film. And sort of historical sort of wrongs that have gone on for really since Reconstruction. And the way that we came to really understand about this history was we read a book called Color of Money, which is by a woman named Mercer Barabara. It's a fantastic book. It's a great read. And it's about the history of black banking since reconstruction and how the policies that the federal government has put in place in the past almost, well, 150 plus years, those policies have really created a, a series of failure after failure and the inability of black communities to really develop economic independence, black families to create generational wealth. And it was Bill Clinton. She points to the only thing that she can highlight is a program which is the creation of community development financial institutions, which Bill Clinton created. They didn't have this understanding that there are places, there are communities and areas in this country that might be geographically where people do not have access to capital. And as Arlo says in the film, capital is the lifeblood of the community. And so if capital is not circulating, people do not have capital access to capital, to buy a home, to buy a tractor to till the land, to start a new business in a black urban community. If they don't have access to cap, then that community will fail. And if there's no generational wealth that people can use as collateral for a loan, then the economic system is failing them because it's using ways of judging the risk for that loan that will, again, set people up to fail. They will not qualify for the loan. So Clinton understood that you needed to create an entirely different economic system. And so the film highlights these CDFIs. So what Arlo has created is a CDFI, a Community Development Financial Institution. And the whole program is administered by the Fed. Yeah, I didn't know about this program. And it seems like uh, a case where the federal government is doing the right thing by creating this program and working with people like Arlo. Let's talk about Arlo. It's one thing to discover this topic or come to this topic, but it's another to have kind of the perfect vehicle for addressing these issues in the incredibly dynamic and committed and compassionate person that is clearly Arlo Washington. How did you and your fellow director, Christine, connect with Arlo? I was speaking with a friend about the CDFI programs and what we had learned about Clinton, Clinton had done. And this friend worked for many years at the Clinton Foundation. She said, Bill Clinton's going to be interviewing a woman for a Zoom series that he does for the Clinton Foundation. 
woman named Donna Gambrell, who was the first director of the CDFI program in his administration. And so we watched this and it was just, it was a wonderful conversation. Donna is now the president of the National Association of Black Bankers, and she administers a special CDFI program for the Fed. So I just broke her. I said, Donna, I just watched this conversation between you and Bill Clinton. This is what Christina and I are doing. We would like to embed in the CDFI. We spoke and she said, there's this guy in Little Rock. It was Arlo Washington, and he's a barber, and he's a barber college, and he has opened up a CDFI in a shipping container in the parking lot of his barber college. Immediately, very intrigued, and then she introduced us. We started Zooming with Arlo and immediately found him to be tremendously compelling and charismatic, and so we went down the rock to meet him, and we were off to the races. He is incredible. There's something about that shipping container just speaks to his grit and determination and ability to do so much with really not that many resources. Arlo began his professional career as a barber. He started his own barber shop. He expanded from there. In 2008, he created this Washington Barber College, which, as you say in the film, has led to some 1,500 people becoming licensed barbers. I want to talk about the scenes in the Barber College, which I love. They're just some really moving sequences as we see the interactions between Arlo and the students and between the students and their teachers. And it struck me that these are not necessarily the typical scenes we associate with black barbershops in movies, in documentaries, which are usually depicting them, you know, as places of community dialogue and fellowship. But here we're seeing how, you know, cutting hair is a viable trade for many people for whom there have been real barriers to entry. As you spent time in the Barber College shooting and just observing, what made this place special? Washington Barber College is a trade school and people are there for about 18 months. They do have to take an exam when they're done that the state administers and they are all starting their careers, either getting a chair in a salon or opening up their own business. Arlo has built a program that is training people not just to cut hair, but what it is to be an entrepreneur. So they're getting a lot of financial literacy education. They're learning about credit. They're learning about taking out loans to start their businesses. So there's a lot going on, more than we could possibly show in the film. But it's all that. And then there is a scene in the film that I'm sure you noted, which is this moment where Arlo asks the students, two students to stand up and all the other students are gathered for a sort of encounter session. And Arlo has these two very tall, handsome men stare into each other's eyes for two minutes. And it's a very powerful scene and hope people will watch the film. But I think that even revealing here that one of the men break down in tears from this experience of staring into the eyes of a man for that long. And it's a very powerful moment. And it reveals that Arlo understands that these primarily men, they're not all, but these primarily young black men, that they need to learn a lot more than just the skills of the tools they have in their hand. They need to learn to interact with other people in a genuine way, because that is part of the success of being a barber. It's the relationship that you develop with your clients who will want to come back. And it does create that atmosphere that you're describing is often depicted elsewhere. 
Arlo understands that there are defenses, there are barriers that sometimes keep the people that he's giving the skills to from engaging in a open and welcoming and convivial way. He speaks about the eyes, importance of the eyes and what they communicate. So it's, it just was a demonstration, it is a demonstration of how holistic Arlo is in his commitment to so many aspects of the people that he's working with, whether it's partners who are in training or it's the people who are leading very, very stressed lives who are coming to him for some kind of financial support. Yeah, speaking to how Arlo is with his potential clients at People Trust, which is his credit union bank, compassion is what comes through there very clearly. I loved watching him with people and just listening to the way he talks. He's constantly saying things like, what if we gave you a loan for X amount of dollars with these terms? Would that help? Just the addition of that phrase at the end, would that help? For me, that just completely unlocked a whole new way of thinking of relationships in the banking sector. It's like, how can we help you? Would that help? I just thought that was extraordinary. And outside of like George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life, we just don't associate bankers with this kind of compassionate language and empathy. So I'm just curious, as you were witnessing these interactions between Arlo and members of the community around banking issues, what kind of made an impression on you? What one learns when they're with Arlo, and it doesn't matter where you are, it's wherever he is, it's whether he steps out of his car in the parking lot of the Barber College and the shipping container, or it is downtown in Little Rock, or it's outside of one of the barbershops that he owns. Wherever Arlo goes, people know him primarily in the black community. And he has developed reputation as the, the only black old bank that people can go to. And the only place that for various reasons, people can go to if they want to get a loan because there's no other financial institutions will lend them money. And sometimes that's because of people having a criminal history and they therefore will qualify. But the CDFI program uses other means to assess risk. For many people and some of the people in the film who are applying for loans, Arlo truly is the only place they can go. But what you see when you're with Arlo is that wherever he is, there is a, what I described as a river of need that he is stepping into. There's so much stress in the community that he is serving. It is the stress of homeownership. It's the stress of car ownership. It's the stress of building a business. It's the stress of just needing a bridge between now and you know, next month's rent. But Arlo is giving every person who steps up to him his absolute attention. His, I think you can see when you watch the film that he, he's that kind of person who just listens. He, he is only dealing with the person in front of him. And so if he has an appointment, but someone has come up and said, hey, hey, Arlo, you know, I have this problem. He's there. And until he has walked that person over and handed him over to someone in his, in the shipping container to, to help, he's not done it. He can't move on to the next thing. But the level of need, the level of stress that he is trying to alleviate is just true. I think that one thing that 
may occur to people as they're watching the film is he is stepping into this river of need and helping these people who can't get loans anywhere else. So, okay, he's giving these out as loans, but he's not going to get paid back. But at the end of the film, an inner title says 95% of borrowers pay on time, which is an extraordinarily high number. But it made me think, given this high rate of being paid back on time, why don't we see more banks like People Trust doing what Arlo is doing? It just seems like a good business model. It's just that the major financial systems are not interested in loans as small as what Arlo's giving out. It is more work than they are willing to staff up for, for that kind of small dollar sort of return. They are not incentivized to work with a community that needs small dollar loans. I'm saying in the film that the average personal loan is about $1,000 and the average business loan is $5,000. There's few banks that will speak to people about those loans, even if they qualify, even if they're white, they're just not making those kinds of small loans because it just takes too much. It takes the same amount of manpower to service that as it would if the loan was for a couple hundred thousand dollars. So they just they don't see a reason to do it. But this is what Clinton understood, that this is one of the weaknesses in the financial system. Communities need a different kind of financial institution they can turn to. And the program right now, it's about $10 billion a year that the Fed sort of disperses and into the country. And Carlos said in the beginning of the film, factually, that the racial wealth gap is a trillion dollar problem. So $10 billion is just a drop in the bucket. And one of the things that we hope happens is that the film elevates awareness in the halls of power about the sort of real way in which this, this program, which there's an appropriation for every budget season, that this is a great thing that the federal government is doing and that if $10 billion is changing people's lives in the way that the film demonstrates, then why isn't it $20 billion? Why isn't it $100 billion? So if the film can stimulate conversations in Washington about the importance of the CDFI program. I hope that it does. And so much that drives our politics is divisive. But Arlo's story and work seems like something that everyone could get behind. And yet there's a scene toward the end of the film where he's just opened up his new bank, I think, and he's driving with a friend. And the friend basically says, be careful because of your success, they're going to come after you. Arlo, I think, is, a, is not quite sure what to make of this comment or whether he agrees with it or not. But... I wondered if you have a sense one way or the other, especially since your film has been getting out there and being seen by more people and this issue is hopefully being discussed more. Is there a consensus of support behind what Arlo is doing? Or is this warning to be taken to heart that he may be the target of those who don't really want to see him or people like him succeed? I don't feel equipped to answer that question entirely. As a white man outside of Little Rock in Arkansas, was invited in to make the film, but think that conversation that captured between Arlo and Scott Green, who is a community leader. He's also the nephew of Ernest Green, who was one of the Little Rock Milling, which was integration of Little Rock Central High School in 1957 after the Brown B Board of Education. What Scott Green is saying to Arlo is, what he's doing is about being free and the economic independence. And Arlo, this gets to the 
long line that you asked about, which is one man's fight for economic justice. So Arlo is really bravely just forging ahead because he believes in economic justice. And there's a moment in the film when he is talking about the physical divide in the city that was caused by building of the interstate that cleaved the city in half, leaving a black neighborhood where little services, there's no banks, and just across the interstate, a white neighborhood that is economically vital and prospering. And there are 14 banks for a fraction of the number of people that live in the black community. And Arlo is saying, money over here, money over there. Capital over here, capital over there, right there. Opportunity over here, opportunity over there. He just sees it in this binary way that is what's fair and fair and that you have opportunity on one side of the highway, you should have opportunity on the other side. That to me or to us, it just embodies our worldview that these are not, in his mind, these are not complicated problems. There's complicated history. There's complicated social constructs that he is working against. But the idea that opportunity should be the same for all and the access to capital should be the same for all is really what motivates Arlo. He does not cower from the forces that might be working against him. He just pushes ahead. And I think they probably sense that kind of quality to his character that she, and a great way of understanding that is if people have seen the film, they'll appreciate it. But if people have not seen the film, I think they might appreciate hearing this even more, but hopefully it's motivation to see the film. Arlo has become a successful banker. He doesn't have an MBA. He didn't go to business school. How did Arlo open up what is now a successful financial institution? His uncle, who was a security guard at a bank in Chicago, that is also a CDFI, tells Arlo, hey, you should look into the CDFI thing. What does Arlo do? He downloads the legislation. He reads the legislation and it's the playbook right there. It tells him exactly what he has to do. It lays it all out. So it's just a testament to his character that he approached it with just incredible pragmatism. It also is a demonstration that when legislation like this is written, there are people at the time of its inception who have real aspirations for wanting to move the culture in a healthier direction. They're creating a, a federal program that has a purpose bringing greater equality into the society. And they lay out, how is this program going to work? And Arlo just, as I say, took that as a playbook. And I, I just, one of the things I love about Arlo. You mentioned uh, Little Rock Central High a few minutes ago and just the, the Little Rock Nine. I noticed, you know, in the film, there's a short shot of Central High. I think it's because it's quite close to where the bank is located. We don't see what you might expect, which is archival footage of the events from 1957 or thereabouts involving the Little Rock Nine and the attempts to desegregate the school. And I was just curious creatively how you and Christine decided to really root this film in the present and to give it a present tense aesthetic rather than put in a bunch of archival footage, for instance. I think that it was when we made the decision to make a short, it was quite liberating creatively. And 
in the beginning, we set out to make a feature, but it was COVID that really got in our way. We had done a lot of shooting, then Delta happened, and then we went back, did a lot of shooting, and Omicron happened. So our attempts to develop some of the loan recipients as characters that you would get to know more were thwarted by COVID, but we had a lot of material nonetheless. And so we were excited by the idea of making a short. We thought about some of that archive. We looked at that archive. We had our associate producers gather that archive that you're speaking about, but it just, it took us out of Arlo's story. It was not necessary to open the film up in that way. There is one thing that we use. We use a map that shows the redlining districts when the government created these maps that banks use to exclude people from loans and small businesses, small business loans, because those areas, Little Rock or Philadelphia or New York City, any city in this country that were deemed too high a risk and therefore banks would not lend to people. And so you see black neighborhoods that were redlined in Little Rock. So we use that archival map. That's the only tip to a historical past that we do visually. I actually really appreciated that use of the map because I think it's a fundamentally concrete answer to people about institutional racism. Here it is. It's a red line. This really happened. And we have to confront it. But there's another thing. Because of that, consequences of that redlining, the government created the Community Reinvestment, which is the federal government's effort to repair the damage done by excluding Black communities primarily from economic opportunity. So the Community Reinvestment Act requires that any bank that is licensed in this country to maintain its license it has to invest a certain amount of money in the community, in the re formerly redlined communities. Now, a lot of those financial institutions are just not giving back the attention that they are supposed to. And all of that is in the public record. So what does Barlow do? He looks at the CRA rating of all the major financial institutions in Little. And so what she can do is go to them and say, your rating is not high enough. What if we run some capital through people trust? And so it's a win-win situation. You get your CRA rating up and I get some more capital to distribute in my case. It's holding people's feet to the fire. As usual, Arlo has a creative solution to a seemingly inherent institutional problem. My last question is, you use the word playbook that he used this playbook, there's something here that does feel very scalable and it feels like Arlo could be an incredible ambassador to other communities and just go out in the world and educate people and that these CDFI banks could pop up in a lot more places. Is that something that he's interested in or that you guys have discussed? One of the things that is a common through all of the films that I've made is that they always offer a solution, if not being entirely solutions oriented. And that's not common in the documentary world. Documentaries are a remarkable way of shining light problems and social ills, but too often the solutions don't get 
as much attention as they should, in my opinion. But it has been something that I've been committed to in all of my work. And I know Christine shares you know, that as an aspiration. So when I mentioned earlier that Mercer Verodron pointed to the CDFI program as the only successful thing that the government has done, and then you, you meet Arlo and you see that this is a barber who, as I say, did not get his MBA, and here he is running a successful financial institution. One of the things that excites us most about the film is that it shows that what Arlo is doing is eminently replicable. And that's one of the most important things about the Barber Union is that it's telling the story of one man's fight for economic justice, but that what he's doing is so replicable and it's getting it, tying everything together, being Oscar nominated, being interviewed by you, and others about the film and being able to express that which builds more awareness about this. And then obviously the Oscar nomination and the film being available from New Yorker's YouTube sites, the only barrier to entry is just internet access. It's all, I hope, building to greater awareness of what Arlo's doing and people looking at that and say, I'm gonna do that. This is really the true my community. Oh, we don't have one? I'll open one. And Arlo becoming this ambassador in who can mentor other people to open up CDFIs in their under-resourced communities. I feel like the film really does live up to that solutions-oriented bar that you've set for yourself over the years. It really does deliver not just a moving story of one man's fight, but it gives us a window into another better world. So. Hopefully the film will continue to gain traction and that Arlo will continue to mentor people and spread the word. Thank you, John, for being here and congratulations to you and Christine on the film. Thank you very much. And best of luck with the Oscars. Do you have a hidden gem, a documentary film that you think maybe doesn't quite get the attention that it deserves? I loved one of the nominees from last year's Oscars in the shorts category. It was a film called Audible by Matt Oggins. And I just found it to be just truly a gem as a piece of filmmaking. It was incredibly moving. It's a story of this school for deaf kids and their football team. And I just really was blown away by Matt's work on that film. We did talk to Matt for the podcast, so folks can find that on Top Dogs. Top Dogs is a production of Wooly Media. This episode was produced by Ken Jacobson and Mike Merrill and edited by Mike.